Domestic violence is a complicated topic. Even though I worked for a time in a domestic violence court, I've never seen a case like this before. A case where a child was made to kill by her mother. I'm so glad you've joined me for today's episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're going to dive deep into another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 40. The book that I chose this week is My Mother's Soldier by Mary Elizabeth Bailey. We're so lucky to have as our guest Chris Moles, who edited and contributed to Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. Chris is a pastor, a certified biblical counselor, an author, and a podcaster. He's going to help us unpack some areas where the church needs to grow when it comes to responding to and ministering to families that have experienced domestic abuse. First, let's take a look at this story. Childhood wounds plague us all, but it's really hard to even imagine any that are worse than those of Mary Elizabeth Bailey. When she was just 11 years old, she committed a murder. That's just a shocking thing to even say. But what's more shocking and perverse is why she did it. Mary killed her abusive stepfather, not because she thought that it was the only way she could stop the abuse. She killed him because her mother told her to. Mary had a childhood that I wouldn't wish on anyone. She'd moved nine times by the time she was 10 years old. Her hard-partying 17-year-old mother mostly left Mary in the care of her grandparents. And Mary's 30-year-old married father was not around to help raise or support her. When Mary was four, her mother married a man named Willard. It was a very rocky relationship, full of breakups and reconciliations. Mary was absolutely terrified of Willard, and she did everything she could not to upset him. Her grandmother moved in with the family after her grandpa died. The grandmother did try to keep the peace, but her efforts rarely worked. In time, Willard took a job as a truck driver, which kept him away from home a lot. Mary was thrilled, and her mother responded by diving back into her hard partying ways. Of course, I'm not really sure that she ever left those hard partying ways. But now, with her husband out of the way, it allowed her to start carrying on with another man. This new guy, though, disappeared after he wrecked her car. Mary knew that Willard would be furious when he got home, and her mother knew it, too. That was the first time Mary could remember hearing her mom say that Willard would kill them if they didn't kill him first. And he did try. He held them all at knife point and beat Mary's mother. When things calmed down a bit, Mary helped get her siblings to bed, and she tried to sleep too, but she was hungry. In all the chaos, no one had thought to feed them, not that there was ever much food around anyway. Mary snuck some of her baby brother's formula. It embarrassed her, but at least she finally felt full. A local church had held a vacation Bible school at a low-income housing complex near where Mary lived. She met a man who called himself Brother Jim, and he would stop by the house to see if Mary wanted to come to VBS that day. She would have gone absolutely anywhere to escape the misery in her home. After VBS ended, Mary begged her mother to be able to go to the church where Brother Jim and his wife, Mrs. Kay, went. And it was right after this latest blow-up that Mary was able to get away to a Sunday night service. 
It was the last peaceful evening Mary would have for a very, very long time. The next day, Mary's mother kept the kids home from school, which made Willard furious. He threatened to kill Mary's baby brother, and maybe that was the tipping point. Or maybe it was his threat to kill Mary's mother as he slowly passed out from the effects of his steady drinking all day. Either way, Mary's mother decided it was time. Time for Mary to kill Willard. The gun didn't go off the first two times Mary fired, but the third time? Well, I wouldn't say it was a charm, but it did the trick. Mary then jumped in bed with her grandmother while her mother called police. And at first, Mary's mother claimed that she had shot Willard. Mary told police that she had, but they didn't believe an 11-year-old. Mary's mother then changed her story and said that Mary had shot him, and it was all her idea. Now, I know most of us have some gripes about our childhoods. But when we're done with this episode, call your parents and tell them how lucky you were to have them and not this monster. As if the woman hadn't done enough damage already, Mary's mother forced her to talk to the reporters who showed up at their house. Brother Jim showed up, too. He took Mary and her mother to the emergency room so they could document the beatings that Willard had given them both. Mary pulled him aside and asked him if she was going to hell for what she'd done. He reassured her that she wasn't. And in the book, Mary wrote, No one had ever shown me the kindness and love that he did. Mary would miss him after she was sent away to live in a series of foster homes until she turned 18. It took a long time and a lot of therapy for Mary to accept that her mother was the one that needed to go to jail, not her. A year passed while everyone waited for the trial, where Mary would have to testify against her mother. The prosecution, of course, painted the woman as an unfaithful wife and irresponsible mother. The defense argued that she was a battered woman. The truth is, she was both. What everyone wondered about, what you may be wondering about, was whether her decision to have her daughter kill her abuser was her only reasonable option. After hearing testimony that Mary's mother had tried to convince several other people to kill Willard, they found her guilty of murder in the first degree. Maybe because of the abuse she'd endured, they did ask the judge to show her mercy. Mary's mother was sentenced to 10 years for the murder of her husband. Mary, of course, was sentenced to a lifetime of emotional scars and the loss of her life with her siblings. The odds are really stacked against most foster kids who stay in the system until they age out at 18. Roughly half will develop substance abuse problems. Nearly 70% of the girls will become pregnant by the time they're 21. And one in four won't graduate from high school or earn a GED. But Mary beat the odds. She became a nurse and even started her own business. She reconnected with Brother Jim and Mrs. K and learned that they had wanted to adopt her. But a judge decided that Mary needed a fresh start away from where Willard was killed. I can maybe see his reasoning, but what Mary needed was two people who loved her and wanted her. The system had let her down her whole life. But Brother Jim and Mrs. K had showed her the love of God, and I know that that helped play a big role in helping Mary beat the odds. And that leaves me with a question. Who's going to step in and save others caught up in horrific domestic violence situations? Is it the church's job? Let's check in and ask that question to today's guest, Pastor Chris Moles. You will really want to hear his take on this topic. 
Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I love the unique blend of perspectives you have as a pastor and someone who has studied the problems of domestic violence as much as you have. I'm just going to dive right in and ask you kind of a tough question. I have my opinion on this, but I want to hear from you. Why is it so important for the church to get involved and help these families that find themselves caught in domestic abuse situations? I think, I mean, we can go all kinds of different directions, but first it's a gospel mandate. I think if we're going to be obedient to the gospel, we really need to follow uh, Jesus's lead. And of course, his first sermon uh, of his public ministry recorded in the book of Luke was reading from Isaiah 61. And he made it very clear that his agenda in bringing the good news was to deliver that good news to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And then he models that throughout his entire ministry, whether it's touching lepers, speaking with women, crossing ethnic boundaries, overcoming death itself, uh, like the instance when he healed the widow's son or when he raised Lazarus from the dead or his own resurrection. So there's certainly a gospel mandate. And then secondly, there's an ecclesiological mandate in 1 Peter 5, those of us who are elders, Peter calls us as fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God. And I think that includes protection. And then, of course, there's absolutely some pragmatic, sanctifying work that only the church can participate in that I like to call confrontational ministry that occurs in Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. And then lastly, if I can just take one more stab at it, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 gives us a framework for care. Admonish the unruly, encourage those who are the de- that are discouraged, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So from an ecclesiological position, from the view at the pew, we should be engaged with everybody. From the pulpit perspective, we should be ministering to the word to those who are sinning or being sinned against. And then from the gospel perspective, we should be following in the footsteps of Jesus, caring for the marginalized. That is so fantastic, and I couldn't agree more. I think one of the problems we see is that women in general, especially in the church, and I don't want to skip over the idea that there are male victims too, but the vast majority are women, and we're very good at hiding things. If something's going on, a woman's blaming herself, she's not coming forward and asking for help, how do we reach those people? Well, you know, there is an importance to disclosure. There's certainly a value in a victim coming forward. And there is a responsibility of the church to be aware, to do some preventative measures, to educate the church. But ultimately, as you say, this is a sin that is incredibly well hidden. Uh, It's one that's reinforced with threat and fear and economics. So it's really difficult for a lady in our church to disclose. So for us, being open and, and honest with our congregation that we see abuse as a a theological problem, I think will help if pastors can come forward and say, you know, we see abuse in all its forms as a desecration of the image of God, as a demonic distortion of the way God designed relationships. And so therefore we will take it seriously. That would help. I think educating the church on the dynamics and impact of abuse and actually recognizing that it does happen, uh, unfortunately, at the same rate in the church as it does outside the church And maybe a real commitment from those of us who are leaders to say, because it's so significant, because it's at such a high level in the church, we're going to be really committed to make the church the safest place on the planet. So I think saying those things, living those things, modeling those things, and maybe one last thought here, engaging with good men 
about 20, 25% of men are perpetrating these acts. That means that 75 to 80% of us are not. But we've been surprisingly quiet for a long time. I think engaging with good men in the church, helping educate us so that we can stand up and say, we also are going to take this responsibility. That This is not the way God designed the marriage relationship to be. And we're going to hold the real standard high and much higher than we support the counterfeit. What kind of signs can we look for? Anybody that's not trained and might not realize, like you said, how prevalent this is in the church. What signs can we look for to be able to reach out and say, maybe if anything's going on, I'm a safe person to talk to. I think, and you know this well, having you know been an investigator for so long, I think recognizing aspects of control in the home where one person's voice or value is seemingly diminished and another's is seemingly elevated. Those are some red flags. Aspects of threat of any kind are red flags uh, that we can press into. But then I think also just recognizing the need for community. And so there's some tactics that are very common among abusers like isolation and uh, manipulation that if you don't really have access to this person outside of controlled frameworks, that would be another real click on the on the radar. And then lastly, when working with individuals who may be abusing others, minimization, denial, and blame are probably the, the tips of the iceberg that you'll encounter when an individual or one of their allies says things like, well, it's not that big of a deal, or she tends to exaggerate, or everyone knows that she's crazy, when the dialogue and the narrative being created by the potential abusive individual or their allies is to convince you that the other person is the problem. And rather than a willingness to self-reflect, that's a huge indicator that something beneath the surface is, is larger than it seems. And what would you say to women who have tried to disclose to maybe be told your role is to submit? You need to love him better. You need to pray more. Yeah, those are all wonderful suggestions. They're just impotent in addressing abuse. I think we have conflated that in many ways. So I actually am more of a traditional complementarian Christian. I do think that men and women function differently in the home. However, I don't think that submission is subjugation. In fact, once an individual is forced to submit, it ceases to be submission. And now it's oppression because submission is a yielding of the will. It's voluntary. So when a person is forced to submit, it's no longer submission. I also think that headship is problematic in some of our circles because we're not we're not viewing headship through the lens of Jesus. We're viewing it through the lens of the world. And so when you hear a phrase like, you know, husband is the head, I think what we think of as president or CEO, but really Jesus, as he defines leadership in Matthew 20, Mark 10, he calls the disciples to service. If you might remember, he says to them, you know, power over is the way the heathen use authority. And I don't want that among you guys. It cannot be that way among you. If you want to be great, you should serve. If you want to be first, you should be last. Then, of course, he models that in John 13 by washing the disciples' feet. He identifies as such, and Paul identifies him as this great servant in uh, Philippians chapter 2. He considered equality with God not something to cling to, but he became humble all the way to death. And so I think there's a real reality that if we are viewing headship and submission as dominance and subjugation, then we've actually deviated from these biblical principles and we're incorporating worldly principles. Again, that's a little bit of a theological lesson. I probably wouldn't get too deep in the weeds with a victim on that. But I think that's one of our issues is sometimes our churches are reinforcing 
faux theological concepts that come more from our interaction with the world than true theological concepts that come from an honest reading of the scriptures. I love to hear you say that because I think that's an argument that needs to have an honest conversation around it more. Sure. Because everything you just said circled back around to something you said before, and that's that idea of control. Yeah. Not being someone that is doing what's best for this other person. You're doing what's best for you. And I think that resonates with how we opened our time today, even if you read, for instance, one of the scriptures that victims report most often being used against them is First Peter chapter 3. It's a submission passage that follows a, a story of Jesus not responding to his own crucifixion. Right? He didn't revile against the revilers. Instead, he trusted himself with the guardian of his soul. He trusted himself to God. And we have heard so many accounts of victims who have been told by their pastor to go back to be quiet, to be gentle. Two great strategies, by the way. We don't have time to unpack, but not in isolation of the church or of this, this, the scripture that God has provided us with, because they will say, we'll go and trust God. But the problem is 1 Peter 5 says, again, as I, as I alluded to at the beginning, that we're called to be shepherds of God's flock. That's what she is doing. The moment she comes to us for help as pastors, she is trusting God. And when we turn her away with no significant resource other than to continue to be abused, then I actually think we are disobeying the call of being a shepherd. And I think we're going to be held accountable for that. That's a great point. I want to turn a little bit now toward the perpetrators, the abusers, because as much as we hate to admit this, we have to minister to them, too. So how would you confront and try to admonish and restore, if possible, someone who has been oppressive, who has been abusive? And then what do you do if they don't repent? Yeah, so I want to recognize my role, first of all, as a pastor. So I function a little differently than maybe some of the other team members that need to be engaged. So, So let me give a little bit of a scenario. If I were to witness an act of domestic violence, I were to witness a husband attacking his wife, say, in the church parking lot, my best recourse is to immediately call law enforcement and then attempt to intervene. Because law enforcement is going to be the safest, best response for her immediate safety during a violent attack. However, that changes a bit when I receive a disclosure, say, in the pastoral counseling room. Uh, I'm not a mandated reporter for domestic abuse. I am in my state for child abuse, uh, elder abuse, abuse of a disabled person. But because victims of domestic violence have agency, they have choices in front of them. Not all acts of domestic abuse are criminal or chargeable, if you can even say that word. And the sentencing and responses are not always severe. I could be doing more damage by reporting prematurely than working with the victim. So Second scenario, I'm receiving a disclosure of, let's say, long-standing emotional and periodic physical or sexual abuse of an individual who's married or in an intimate relationship. My best recourse as a pastor is to function in that role by resourcing, connecting her to an advocate, praying and giving her good, solid biblical counsel. What I think we have deviated from, and I would warn against, is pastors who try to function as an investigator. That's really not our primary job. So I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm not a PI. My job is not to compile evidence to prove a point. My job is to listen. And I think uh, Proverbs 18, 17 says that, you know, one seems right until another comes and gives an account. But Proverbs 18, 18 says that if you still don't know what account is true, cast lots. 
there's a real necessary step for us as pastors to just trust God with the outcome. When someone comes and begins to share their story with me, I want to listen and I want to learn, not necessarily determine all of the, the legal processes behind that. I want to leave that to trained professionals that I want to partner with who are going to execute justice. I'm not bringing a punitive response. I'm bringing a gospel response. So with all that said, I want to partner with her in confronting and intervening on her behalf. And so if it doesn't require a law enforcement intervention, I want to make sure she has a proper safety plan. I want to make sure she's connected to good resources. And then with her permission, I want to build a team that's going to interact with this individual. The reason why I want a team is because any one of us can drop the ball All of us have blind spots. It's very easy to collude with an abusive individual, especially when part of your job is relating. So if I was law enforcement, I could operate under the law. If I was an investigator, I could operate underneath the guidelines of my investigation and my end goal. But as a pastor, part of my job is to relate to the flock. So in a relational setting like that, I need eyes and accountability for myself that I don't collude that we all keep our eye on the prize, and that is the safety and the sanity of the victim. And so with all of those steps in place, all of those permissions, I would then engage in a um, confrontational ministry like I talked about in Galatians 6, which is to schedule a meeting, to begin the process, and to try to gain his permission to engage in a counseling process with an agenda. The goal is to recognize your own violence and work towards the process of repentance. And I love how you talk about it being a group or a team effort, because I think victims that I've spoken with, they've run into a let's all handle this in-house. And we saw that with the Catholic Church with child sexual abuse and the same thing with the, the Southern Baptist Convention. Sure. And so recognizing that we all have limitations, we all have roles to play and making sure we allow people in other roles to be notified and to play their role is crucial. Sure, you you would be an ineffective investigator if you also tried to counsel one or more of the parties. The, the emotional and relational connection would limit your access to the facts or your ability to put them into a clear working order. The same thing with an interrogator or an investigator that is doing the interviews. You don't want that individual from a law enforcement perspective to be interviewing their cousin or somebody that they know very well. You want that to be an unbiased interrogation or interview. And the same is true from a pastoral perspective. You don't necessarily want just theological principles touted by some stranger. You want a person who knows not only scriptural theology, but the practical theology that applies to your life, because I've witnessed it. I've seen it. We've walked together through so many things. You can trust me. The question then for me as a pastor is, can I trust myself and can I surround myself with a team that will hold me accountable too? so that we recognize that my goal is not his care or not his contrition. My goal is her safety and sanity. And his true repentance is going to be the greatest means of accomplishing that. And then what do you do if there is no true repentance? Well, you have to actually hold the line. And that's a, that's a big miss on some of our, some of our church communities. I think we have conflated confession and initial contrition for repentance. Just because somebody sees their sin doesn't mean that they have owned and hated and turned from their sin. And just because somebody sheds tears doesn't mean that they are necessarily on the path to redemption. And so I I ask churches quite frequently to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. And the godly sorrow that Paul saw in the Corinthian church, he answers through a series of what's. He says, what earnestness, what zeal, what indignation, like you hated your sin, you were passionate to to make restitution. Those patterns need to be seen. I think the other thing I, I bring up quite a bit with my men that I work with is, you know, Ephesians chapter four says, you know, put off falsehood and speak truth with your neighbor. It's an interesting language there in the Greek. It literally could be said, stop being a liar and start being a truther. And then the next thing is anyone who stole, who's a thief, let him steal no more, but find something useful to do with his hands and then become generous. When's a thief no longer a thief? When's a liar no longer a liar? Well, liar's no longer a liar, not when he says, I won't lie, or when he's told a couple truths. A liar's no longer a liar when he's known as a truther. When's a thief no longer a thief? What's not when he says, I'm not going to steal anymore, but it's when he gives up stealing, gets a job, maintains that job, gives some of that money away over a period of time so that we can see his generosity. It's about being known as something different. So repentance isn't, I promise I'll be a good boy from now on. Repentance is, I'm turning from the sin that I hate. I'm seeing it the way God sees it. I've sinned against him and him only, Psalm 51. And I'm moving in a new direction. And I challenge you to watch me for a period of time and tell me that you're seeing my change. When's an abuser no longer an abuser? Not when he stops the one behavior. It's when he evidences the contrary, support loyalty, fidelity. Those are the marks of a non-abusive person. I love how practically you put that because I think that as people of faith, we jump into forgiveness and especially restoration without seeing those fruits, without seeing that evidence. And, you know, being a PI, I'm very evidence-based. I've been lied to so many times because people have an agenda. And so I... Yeah, I think I think we do, too. I think we need to be very upfront with abusive people. I'm not going to tolerate anything less than the safety and the sanity of your partner. And I would I would rather you be obstinate than you be wishy washy, like fish or cut bait, get on or get off. We're not going to play these games that you've been playing for some. You're not going to play them with me. You're not going to play them with the church. We have to have a point of decision because it's so essential to there being true repentance, there being a measurable means of restitution. And I think the last thing I'd like to say about that really clearly is when we talk about restoring people, I really think the church has made a mistake here too. And I I love the church. That's why I'm saying these things. We want to restore people to marriage. We want to restore people to ministry. Why don't we restore people to Jesus? Like Mm -hmm. really restore people to God. If you might have lost your marriage, that's just a reality. The consequence of you breaking the covenant might be that your marriage ends in divorce. I don't get to control that, but you can be restored to God and you don't get to be restored to ministry just because you want it. I'm sorry that you spent all that years in seminary, but you may have made a decision against a parishioner and somebody in your care that forfeits that opportunity. There are plenty of places to make money. I would much rather you come to know Jesus than find your ministry position back or get back in the pulpit. That is really the last thing that should be on our mind. Thank you for saying that. I feel like I've been shouting that in the wind for years and years and years. You're backing up everything you say with not only research in the field, but scripture and practical application from people that you've worked with. So you have this this vast body of resources that you've participated in creating 
And I want people to know how they can access all that. So how do people find it? How do they connect with you? The best way is uh, our website, chrismoles.org. That's where you can connect to PeaceWorks. That's our ministry that uh, is designed to educate the church and then also to help with confronting men. Uh, if you want more details about confrontational ministry, uh, you can look at menofpeace.org. That's where you can find our self-paced course and the materials for men who understand that they're abusive. We also have a brand new book that just came out, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. And it's just a kind of a field manual with me and some of my friends who've been doing this work for a long time. And so we would encourage folks to pick that up. And then uh, my first book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, is geared more towards helping helpers address the problem of abuse when working with perpetrators from a gospel-centered perspective. That is wonderful. And I will have links to everything in the show notes. So please check out these resources. Statistically speaking, someone you know is caught in domestic violence right now. They may not have told you that, you may not recognize it, but it's happening. Again, I just, I can't thank you enough for sharing with us today and giving us all of this great information. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The scripture I want us to dive into today is from Proverbs. It's chapter three, verses 27 and 28. And this is the New Living Translation. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. If you can help your neighbor now, don't say come back tomorrow and then I'll help you. In today's case, Mary's mother could have kept her children safer if she'd made less selfish choices. You'll have to trust me because I didn't go into nearly as many details as the book did. Mary's grandmother could have called the authorities and maybe she feared losing the kids to foster care, but that's what ended up happening anyway. Maybe they could have avoided a lot of grief in the meantime. Brother Jim and Mrs. K probably did more for Mary than anyone. We don't know if the schools that Mary attended did much. And to be fair, her family moved a lot, which is quite common among families where abuse is happening. If the abuser doesn't let you get close to anyone, it's less likely that you'll get help. And it doesn't seem as though neighbors did much. But if they did make some attempts to help, they weren't very successful. We are all supposed to do good things for people whenever we can. We aren't supposed to put it off. Keeping a battered wife and an abused child safe is certainly good. So if you suspect that someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there are several different ways that you can help them. If you fear for that person's immediate safety, call 911. I know people say, I don't want to get involved, but we have to. We have to be able to step up and help people wherever we can. Today's verse says, don't say that you'll help tomorrow. For some victims of domestic violence, tomorrow will be too late. You can also tell that person that you're concerned about them and you want them to know that you're a safe person to talk to whenever they're ready. Make sure you let them know that a hotline exists that they can call for confidential help. I've put that number in the show notes for you. So be sure you store it somewhere that you can access it when you need to share it with someone. Anyone experiencing domestic violence needs to be reminded that they do not deserve what is happening to them and they are not to blame. They need to be believed. They need to know that God's plan for loving relationships, especially marriages, is that each partner puts the other's need above their own and that children are to be seen as a blessing. We do need to tell them just how very much God loves them, but we cannot stop at mere words. 
We've got to show that love by doing whatever good is in our power to do for them. So I'm going to challenge all of us, myself included, to find someone in our circle who needs us to see them, believe them, and offer practical help to them. I want to know what you think. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.